Good evening to you. Ezekiel chapter 45 tonight, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you uh, do not have a Bible, flag one of the guys coming up the aisle uh, with Bibles, and uh, you'll be fairly lost trying to follow tonight without a Bible. And, uh, and then hopefully each of you got one of these uh, maps or these kind of diagrams of, of the division of, of Israel uh, during the kingdom age. If you didn't get one of those, just raise your hand as well right now and they'll get one of those to you. To you. Uh, and if you have your old diagram from describing the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem uh, from uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, that will still be handy a little bit uh, this evening. We remember that Uh, from chapters 40 through 48, that it is a description uh, uh, by God, a vision that is given to Ezekiel, a description of the Jewish temple that will be built and really the condition of the nation of Israel will become uh, Jerusalem will, the temple will, uh, Israel will become the center of the worship of God during what is known as the millennial reign of Christ the 1,000-year reign of Christ, which immediately follows Jesus' second uh, coming. I think it is helpful for us as we read through, uh, you know, just some real, real detail in these chapters to uh, kind of put ourselves in Ezekiel's shoes and, uh, and then try and understand the tremendous, not only interest this would have had to him and those Jewish people that he was delivering this vision to, uh, but the excitement it would have produced within them. Ezekiel, you might remember, was of a priestly lineage, and he would have, if the Babylonian captivity had not occurred, he would have been a priest in Jerusalem. And because of the sins of the fathers and the sins of the nation, he ended up uh, being taken captive and removed from uh, Jerusalem before he could ever take that place. And so he reads this, and he reads about God uh, the, the temple being rebuilt, the Jewish temple, uh, at this point destroyed by the Babylonians, about Jerusalem having a future, about the nation of Israel uh, having a future, and, while, and, and there they are in that captivity in Babylon, and every line of this would have made his heart sore, that there was a future and a hope despite all of their failings, and God likes happy endings, and And that's the context with which uh, the excitement that the initial readers of the book of Ezekiel uh, uh, would have had and Ezekiel would have had himself. And I think it's sometimes good to put ourselves in their shoes. Here in uh, verse 40, uh, chapter 45, the uh, land of Israel, description of how the land is going to be divided among the tribes, but also among the priesthood, uh, those that are going to be conducting worship in Jerusalem during the kingdom age. Uh, he, he'll talk uh, a lot about the division of the land among the 12 tribes of Israel, much in the same way that the, the land at, at the time of the conquest of the promised land under Joshua was divided among the 12 tribes. Uh, they, they will, it will be divided once again in the kingdom age among the 12 tribes, but interestingly enough, uh, in, it, completely differently than the portions that were allotted the tribes in the, in the conquest under 
uh, under, under Joshua. And so he gets into that in earnest in chapters 47 and 48, but he'll, he'll dabble in a little bit before he gets there. And so here is the land, the, districts, uh, uh, the district of land that is going to be uh, allocated to the priests and the Levites and the city of Jerusalem uh, itself. And you can see this actually in the center of your, your map there where you see that priests, Levites, and workers, and then the sea that is there for the city of Jerusalem. And moreover, when you divide the land by lot into uh, inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord. And he's talking about this total area that is going to surround Jerusalem, and that belongs to the Lord. Yeah, he's, he's, it's going to be divided into three parts among, among the priests and among the Levites and for the city, as we'll see here. A holy section of the land, its length shall be uh, 25,000 cubits and the width 10,000, and it shall be uh, holy throughout the territory all around. And so you've got an area that's roughly 8.3 miles uh, by 3.3 uh, miles. This is pretty good, a pretty good sized piece of land. And uh, of this, there shall be a square plot for the sanctuary, which we studied last time, 500 by 500 rods with 50 cubits around it for an open space. And so this is the district you shall measure. 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide. In, uh, in it shall be the sanctuary, the holy place. It shall be a holy section of the land belonging to the priests, uh, the ministers of the sanctuary who come near to minister to the Lord. It shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for uh, the sanctuary. And so uh, the, the priests are going to be, uh, during the kingdom age, they will be involved in, uh, in uh, the, the worship of God there in Jerusalem. And so they're going to be allocated land very, very near uh, the, the new temple there. But not only the priests, but also the Levites. The, uh, the Levites were kind of a support group to the priests uh, under the Old Testament uh, law, and uh, they'll be also uh, situated and located within the land with, with close proximity to the temple as well. An area 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide shall belong to the Levites, the ministers of the temple, and they shall have 20 chambers as a possession. And then, and you shall appoint as the property of the city. The remaining third of this piece of uh, of land is going to go to the, the the city of Jerusalem proper during that kingdom age. An area five thousand cubits wide and twenty five thousand long, adjacent to the district uh, of the holy section. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. And then he begins to talk about a district of the land that is going to be allocated to the priest, or, or rather the prince, who is going to be over the area of Jerusalem during the kingdom age. Uh, my uh, best uh, guess at who this is, and I think that Ezekiel has identified him earlier in, in this uh, prophecy as being uh, Daniel himself, I mean uh, David himself. And the prince shall uh, have a section on one side and on the other of the holy district and the city's property. And bordering on the holy district and the city's property, extending westward on the west side and eastward on the east side, and the link shall be side by side with one of the uh, tribal portions. 
nations. It will abut land that has been given uh, to another tribe from the west border to uh, the east border. The land shall be his possession in Israel, this land being allocated to him. And, uh, and uh, my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land uh, to the house of Israel according to their tribes. Now, one of the great problems historically in, in, in the world and current even today, but it is a historical problem, is that people, when they've been given a position of authority, a position of power, that most often they will then use that position of power to enrich themselves, and not only to enrich themselves, but to enrich themselves through the oppression of the citizens of their kingdom. I don't know if, uh, you know, um, one of these terrible dictators uh, died here recently at the age of 90-something. Only the good die young, sometimes. And uh, sometimes the wicked can live very old. I mean, it's weird for me. Sometimes I'll watch football games and they'll have an eight-year-old girl or an eight-year-old boy on the sidelines and they have no hair because of their cancer treatments and all and what they're fighting for. And then you see the wicked live uh, on scotch and cigarettes and uh, who, uh, oppression of other people until they're almost 100 years old. But uh, sometimes I look at these dictators and I... And I, I just think, you know, and, and I probably have the same wicked heart as, as they would have. And I, I know God would, would help me to deal with it differently than they, they have. But can't you just build the most fabulous single palace in the entire nation and, uh, and then set up an IRA that will take care of you for the rest of your life and just be content with that? without then taking land from everybody else and stripping every bit of wealth from the nation. And in the kingdom age, uh, no one in a position of authority will engage in that kind of thing. The same thing that Jezebel and Ahab did in, in taking that, uh, that vineyard uh, away from one of their subjects. And that, there'll be none of that kind of thing. God says, I'm going to give the prince all that he will need, his family allocation, and he is not to be tempted to steal from anybody else. Uh, None of that will happen in the kingdom age to, uh, to have more. And thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of uh, Israel. Uh, He said, remove violence and plundering, execute justice and righteousness, and stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. All of this, which historically has been true of human government, all of this will be put to uh, an end in the kingdom age, and uh, you shall have honest scales and honest ephah, uh, and uh, an honest bath, and so this a measurement, and uh, and the ephah and the bath shall be the same measure, so that the bath contains one tenth uh, of a homer, and uh, the ephah one tenth of a homer. Their measure shall be according uh, to uh, the homer. And the shekel shall be 20 geras and 20, uh, 20 shekels, 25 shekels and 15 shekels shall be your mina. And so he's talking, you know, we have the, this uh, department in our government that is the department of uh, weights and measures where they will randomly check whether when you go to a gas station and you pump a gallon of gas, do you really get a gallon? Are they cutting you short? Or when you go to a butcher shop or you go wherever and, and because all you have to do 
is have a little bit of corruption come in and they can be robbing everybody and not aware of it. And so everything will be straight, straightforward, uh, no corruption on a... Uh, on any kind of even a governmental level where corruption can kind of reign uh, on a frustrating level for a taxpayer, uh, even in the United States where there's some uh, checks and balances related to it, it will be very, very refreshing. And this is the offering which uh, you shall offer. And he talks about the offerings associated uh, with the prince and uh, the, the offerings that uh, the people are, give to the prince in order that he might then give them to the priest to offer for the nation. This is the offering which you shall uh, offer. You shall give one-sixth of an ephah of a homer of wheat, again a measure, and one-sixth of an ephah of a homer of barley. The ordinance concerning oil, uh, the bath of oil is one-tenth of a bath from a core. A core is a homer or ten baths for ten baths are a homer. These are all Old Testament uh, Jewish measurements. And one lamb shall be uh, given from uh, a flock of 200 uh, from the rich pastures of Israel. Uh, these shall be for grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement for them, says the Lord. All the people of the land shall give this offering uh, for the prince in Israel. And so these offerings were, will be brought by people to the prince and he will then present those as offerings associated with, with the new temple. And then it shall be that uh, it, then it shall be the prince's part to give uh, burnt offering, grain offerings, drink offerings uh, at the feast, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and all the appointed seasons uh, of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. So his responsibility, the prince will be to gather these things, to then have deliver them to uh, the 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 priests so that they can be offered uh, during the kingdom age. Again, as we've mentioned twice before, um, but uh, important for anybody that's uh, new here and important to be reminded of it uh, irregardless. It, it, it can seem weird to us that there are going to be sacrifices that resemble the sacrifices in the Old Testament that will be offered during the kingdom age. Jesus will be ruling and reigning uh, in, in Jerusalem and that during that kingdom age, uh, and we know that all of these offerings from the Old Testament, uh, all of it, rep all of these holy days, they were all types. They were all pictures of of Jesus who was to come. So we can get confused when we look at this and say, wait a second, didn't Jesus come and fulfill all of these things? Why in the world during the kingdom age are these things going to be offered and these holy days going to be um, going to be honored and, and celebrated. And, uh, and, and so the, the, the great question related to it. Um, I don't know that I know, certainly I don't know all of the answers to it except that it will happen and it certainly, none of these offerings will be offered as a means of establishing some superior right standing before God, uh, more, uh, superior to what we have 
in Christ, which is perfect. And so, the, so these offerings are uh, commemorative. They are, will be offered as a reminder, principally to the Jews, of a reminder of the, the, the fact that all of them spoke uh, throughout their entire Old Testament history. All of these were intended to draw them to Christ, uh, to speak to them of their Messiah, Jesus, who was to come. In other words, they had completely misunderstood the purposes of the offerings in the Old Testament. They decided that they became convinced that it was a means that God had given them by uh, making themselves righteous before God and the keeping of the law and, and being saved as a result of it. All salvation in the Bible is on the basis of faith. All of these sacrifices were given so that when the Messiah came, they would recognize that these were types, these were pictures uh, of him. And, uh, and so you, here you have these thousands of years of Jewish history in which they are offering these things, offering these things, doing these days, doing these days, doing these weeks, doing these feasts, one after another, after another, after another, for thousands of years. And, and they do it and, it, and, and they have no inkling they, they have not put it together at all that it speaks of Christ and it speaks of Jesus. And they, they miss the entire thing through that part of their history. And so I think God in his grace allows these sacrifices and feast days to be celebrated as now a memorial of Jesus so they can look at these feasts and these sacrifices the way they were always intended to and to look at them and go, how in the world did we miss this? How did we get so upside down as to think that this was given to us as a means of righteousness rather than as a description of our Messiah who was to come? And for a thousand years, they're going to enjoy what the law of Moses was intended to produce within them concerning uh, Jesus, and they will have that occur within them, and indeed the whole world will. And during that, uh, during that thousand years. And so when he talks there in verse 17, it shall be that the priest shall, uh, uh, the prince's part rather, uh, to, it'll be his part to give the burnt offering, the burnt offering speaking of total consecration to God. Uh, he talks about uh, the, the grain offering. And the grain offering was a thanksgiving offering that the Jews gave. It was a recognition that all food, everything that they had to eat had been given to them by God. And, uh, and then you, uh, you had the drink offerings and the, the new moons, the Sabbath speaking of uh, the Sabbath rest, the rest with God and a relationship with God. That's what the Sabbaths were in, a Sabbath and the Sabbaths were intended to communicate uh, to them. The sin offering, the grain, uh, again, the, the, uh, the grain offering being uh, mentioned, the peace offering. Uh, and uh, the recognition of the fact that uh, it, the thing about the, the one of the uh, facets of the peace offering was that a portion of that offering would be given to God, and uh, and then a portion of it, the the worshipper would take a portion of it and eat it themselves. And it spoke about communion between the worshipper and God, and uh, and so there was this this recognition of relationship. I have a, a peace based relationship with God. And of course, Jesus is the one who came into the world to provide a peace, uh, uh, a peace-based relationship with God, but based uh, upon His blood. So all of it's speaking 
of, of, uh, of Jesus, and this will become clear to them. Hey, better late than never, and I don't say that sarcastically. I, I, it really is God's grace. If I were in their shoes, I would definitely want to not have missed that the impact of that part of my Jewish history, I, I, I would want to come to know the Lord, and then I would want to uh, also um, uh, have, uh, be able to immerse in this imagery a, as well. And given the fact, too, that the Jews and Gentiles who are alive during the kingdom age, uh, they may or may not be saved, depending on what they do with Christ. There'll be a tremendous rebellion against Christ's rule. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will tempt the world once again. And so I think that the, the partaking of these sacrifices, these looking at this, seeing how strongly they speak to Christ will, will bring Jews and Gentiles alike to not only inhabiting the world during the kingdom age, but actually putting their faith in him as well. And thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and uh, cleanse the altar. And so the offering in the, in the feast, how they're uh, to be kept. And so uh, the altar was to be cleansed by means of a, 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 a purification, by means of a sin offering. And uh, the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering, put it on the doorposts of the temple, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the gateposts of the gate of the inner court. And uh, so you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned unintentionally or in ignorance. This you shall do to make atonement for the temple. And then there is the observance of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover and the Feast of Seven Days, Unleavened Bread shall be eaten. And so both of those two feasts, two of the three main Jewish feasts in their religious calendar, will be, uh, will be uh, celebrated during during the kingdom age, the Passover representing uh, the fact that God's judgment passed over the children of Israel based upon the blood that was applied to the doorposts and the lentils of their house when they were in bondage to Egypt, and and a celebration of God's deliverance of the Jewish people from the bondage of Egypt. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Passover, and that He has come into the whole world not only to save Jews but to save Jews and Gentiles from a far stronger bondage than the bondage of Egypt, and that is the bondage of sin. And this imagery will be uh, driven home. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the seven days that follows the day of Passover, all leaven which represents sin in the Scripture, was to be removed from the house, and what it communicated, uh, even in Old Testament imagery, is, is that uh, we are not only to be saved, uh, but once we are saved, uh, we are to walk in purity before God. In other words, He has set us free, and now we have a responsibility by the Holy Spirit to now live free, and those feasts uh, it, it represented that in part. And, in, uh, and on that day, the prince shall prepare for himself, for all of the people of the land, uh, a bull for a sin offering. On the seven days of the feast, he shall prepare <clears throat> 
a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams without blemish, uh, daily for seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a grain offering of one ephah for each bull and one ephah for each lamb together with uh, a hin of oil for each ephah. And then on the seventh month, on the 15th day of that month, uh, uh, at Uh, the feast, and this is talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurs uh, among the Jews uh, this time of the year. It's a fall feast, and it's it's the feast that celebrates the uh, in-gathering in much the same way. Our whole area is is in uh, full mode now uh, in terms of almonds and, and maybe beyond almonds or what I'm aware of in bringing this crop in. And so the, the Feast of Ta- uh, Tabernacles was a time to celebrate uh, not only God's provision for the children of Israel during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but his provision uh, to them of, uh, of sustenance and a celebration of, of the harvest. And that's why um, and, and, and it's sometimes called the Feast of Ingathering. That's why a lot of Bible students think that the uh, Feast of, of, uh, of Tabernacles will be fulfilled in the rapture of the church, the ingathering of uh, God's people from the world prior, prior to the Great Tribulation period. I don't know, I, but I, I, I do know that the first two of those three, all three of these are the three major feasts of the Jews in their religious calendar. Two of them have been clearly fulfilled um, under the new covenant. And, and I think that something related to the end times, maybe second coming, uh, I don't know, will be fulfilled, uh, will, will occur in the timing of, of the Feast of Tabernacles. The one thing you do not want to do is look and say, okay, the Feast of Ingathering, uh, that's got to be the rapture, and so every time in the fall, uh, we, you know, we put on our Sunday best and we begin to ba- behave ourselves in a way we don't in the spring because uh, the Lord could come back at any time. We don't know the, the, the day or the hour to always be ready. And then uh, heading into uh, chapter 46, and thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be set, uh, shut six day, uh, working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and, uh, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. And so we remember last time the gate that came in uh, to the, the temple ground area on the east. It's speaking about uh, that area. Uh, that gate was to be closed for six, uh, six of the days, opened on the Sabbath. And uh, the prince has a, a special relationship uh, with that gate. The prince shall enter by way uh, of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand by the gate posts. Uh, the, the prince shall, and then the priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate, and then he shall go out, uh, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. And likewise, uh, the, uh, he would be joined in that area by the people. The people of the land shall worship at the entrance of this gateway, 
before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. And so they come a certain distance in the area of the temple uh, to where they do not uh, venture into the area in which that is holy ground and the, the priests are offering the sacrifices, uh, but they, they come to a point where they can then watch those sacrifices that are being uh, offered uh, and being offered uh, by them. The burnt offering uh, that uh, the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish, and the grain offering shall be one ephah for a ram and the grain offering for the lambs as much as he wants to give, as well as a hen of oil with every ephah. On the day of the new moon, it shall be uh, a young bull without blemish, six lambs and a ram, and they shall be without blemish. And he shall prepare a grain offering f uh, of an ephah for a bull, an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs and a hen of oil with every ephah. And so uh, this is the, the, the offerings that will be offered uh, on behalf, regularly on behalf of both the priest uh, and the people. And when the prince enters, he shall go by the way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. So when he comes in uh, during that thousand years, very important for you to understand uh, because you don't want to be asking people uh, about, now why, why, is, why does he get his own door? Uh, we'll want to know that. You, you won't have thoughts like that because you'll have a You'll be in your new body by then. You'll understand. But he has that, that single entrance, and he will come in and out through that vestibule of the, of, of the eastern gate. But everybody else who comes into the area of the temple, verse 9, when the people of the land come before the Lord on these appointed feast days, uh, whoever enters by way of the north gate uh, to come uh, into the area of the temple grounds to worship shall go out by the south gate. So they will move uh, straight across in, in coming in. They will come in one direction and they will leave the area of the temple in, in the other direction. We're talking about uh, huge numbers of people uh, that will, will be a part of this and just to allow for the flow of traffic and for the safety of everyone, it'll, it will, everyone will uh, move straight across rather than, than turning back and just for, just for the flow of, of traffic. The logistics, I mean, it, it can be tedious to us, but um, the, the detail with which God has all of this plan is... Uh, really, really something. And details are important to him. And, the, and so anybody that comes in on the other side by coming by the south gate, they shall go out by way of the north gate, and he shall not return by way of the gate through which he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. And uh, if you've ever been to Israel and uh, Jerusalem on busy days, you can understand why it's important for uh, people to come in one place and go out on, on the other end. Uh, it's a lot of, of human beings. And then uh, the, the priest shall be in their midst, and then they shall, when they shall go in, he shall go in, and when they go out, he shall go out. So it'll be, uh, uh, the different offices, it'll be uh, can, uh, the, uh, having this in common, this uh, worship expressed in this way. At the festivals and the appointed feast days, the grain offering shall be an ephah for a bull, an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a... 
uh, and a hint of oil with every ephah. So further instruction concerning offerings. And, and then uh, regulations now concerning the burnt offering and, and uh, peace offerings. Now when the priest makes a voluntary burnt offering or voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces towards the east shall be open for him and he shall prepare his uh, burnt offering and his peace offering as he did on the Sabbath day. And then he shall go out and after he goes out, out of the gate, it shall be shut. And so again, he brings his offering, he watches the priests uh, sacrifice these animals on, uh, in memorial on his behalf, and, uh, and, but he does not offer them. That is what the priest does. And you shall uh, daily make a burnt offering to the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish, you shall prepare it every morning. You shall prepare a grain offering with it every morning, uh, a sixth of an ephah and a third of a hin of oil to moisten the fine flour. This grain offering is a perpetual uh, ordinance to make, be made regularly to the Lord. Thus they shall prepare the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil as a regular burnt offering every morning. And thus says the Lord God, the prince gives, if the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their inheritance, uh, possession by inheritance. So the prince is given this block of land and um, and, and if he wants to give a, a portion of his land uh, to any of his sons, then uh, he, he is uh, free to do that. It will become theirs. Moreover, so he's free to do what he wants with the land that's been allocated to him. And moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. Again, the temptation of leaders and rulers in the ages to look and say, all right, I want to set up my children with some kind of wealth and prosperity, and I don't want to take it from my wealth and prosperity, so I'll take it from uh, the people. And God again steps in and, and reiterates this. This is not going to happen in the kingdom age. And uh, Ezekiel then is, is shown where the sacrifices are going to be prepared uh, during the kingdom age. And so this angelic being brought him through the entrance, which is at the side of the gate, into the holy chambers of the priests, which face toward the north. And there a place was situated at their uh, extreme western end. And he said to me, this is the place where the priest shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering. And there they shall bake the grain offering so that they do not bring them out into the outer, outer court to sanctify the people. And so what you have here are what appear to be the priest's uh, kitchens. You might remember from when we studied uh, all of this in Leviticus and, and elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament that for some of these sacrifices that were offered to the Lord, a portion of the, uh, the sacrifice went to God, but a portion of it then went to the priests. The priests were to be sustained uh, by the worship of, of people toward God. God said, it's all being offered to me. I want a portion of this offering to go back to my priests. They have to be fed. They have to be clothed and, and nourished as well. And so there, there was that 
that allocation, and this is where the priests will, during the kingdom age will partake in their uh, portion of the sacrifice. And so uh, it's very much a, uh, follows, uh, not a, exactly, but uh, in, in a strong way, what uh, the, the model that was in the Old Testament. And then he brought me out into the outer court and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court. And in fact, in every corner of the court, there was another court. And in the four corners of the court were enclosed courts. And uh, try playing basketball on that. Uh, and 40 cubits long and 30 wide. All four corners were the same size, and there was a row of building stones all around uh, in them, all around the four of them, and cooking hearths were made under the rows of stones all around. And he said to me, these are the kitchens where the ministers of the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. And so uh, even as a portion of, some, uh, of the Old Testament some of the Old Testament sacrifices were given back to the priests. There were uh, uh, some of the sacrifices or offerings, a portion of them were given back to the person who was making the offering. And so uh, here you have the, the kitchens or the areas in which people can then eat their portion. Uh, in the area of the temple, they can eat their portion there. Uh, uh, that had given back to them. And all of it was a part of their continued worship with the Lord. So it'd be, you know, I mean, if they took their portion of the sacrifice and they went back home or went wherever and then they sat down and eat it, well, that'd be special enough. I mean, you, you take what you can get. But for the full experience, I mean, you, uh, you would want to say, I want to offer this to him. And then here, I want to eat my part of the sacrifice that represents my fellowship and my peace with God in, in this place. And so there is, uh, there is room that uh, is uh, allocated for just that purpose. In uh, chapter 47, and then he, this angelic being, brought me back to the door of the temple, Ezekiel says. And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple uh, toward the east. Now, that's very alarming in, in any building. One time we came back from Disneyland and uh, found water running underneath our kitchen sink. It's not, a, it's not that exciting uh, way to come home. So water running in any kind of a structure is a, is a, a damaging thing, so, but, but not this. So uh, he's brought here to the, t the temple. He's brought to the door of the temple. Ezekiel is allowed to see it, and there's this water and it is flowing under the threshold of the temple toward the east, uh, for the front of the temple faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. Now, those of you who have been to Israel, and you might remember the uh, model uh, of uh, ancient uh, Jerusalem that, that we went and saw for a portion of one day, and uh, the, the temple faced toward the east. It faced toward the Kidron Valley, that's how it was uh, set up, and uh, this one will be as well. And so here you have this water that is flowing now out of the temple. It flows to the east. The valley that it's flowing toward and into is the Kidron Valley, which sits on the, uh, between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount area there on the east side of, of Jerusalem. And if you've never been there, it's worth going, you know, Googling or, well, we don't use Google anymore because they're all spying on all of us. But, but find out whoever, oh, oh, uh, tongue in cheek slightly, um, but 
the, the um, okay, I've messed myself up really bad here in terms of getting back in. But, the, but whoever you want to use as your search engine, is that the right word? Okay, I'm using it, you know what I'm saying. And, but to go in and look at this imagery, there's so much that's online that can really put things together, not necessarily to figure out Ezekiel chapter 37, but to understand kind of the lay of the land in case you have never been there or, or might not, not have the privilege of, of getting there. And so this, he, he's brought to the, the entrance there. The water is now flowing out of this new Jerusalem temple. And he brought me out by the way of the north gate. And he led me uh, around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went uh, to the uh, uh, and, and when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured, so here's the stream that is flowing uh, from the, uh, the temple during this uh, thousand year uh, reign of Christ, this flow of water, he measures out a distance from, uh, and, and God is the source of this water. Water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of God in the Bible. And, uh, and so he measures from the source of this, uh, the, where the water's coming from. He measures out a thousand cubits, which is 1,750 feet. And he brings Ezekiel then into the water at that level. And when Ezekiel's brought out into the water, the water only comes up to his uh, ankles. And so the, uh, this uh, angelic guide that he has measured another 1,000 feet, brought him out through the waters, and the water now came came up to his uh, knees, and he measured uh, again another thousand, and, and uh, as he's making his way down this river in this way, the water then came up to uh, his waist, and then he measured another one thousand. And it was a river that I could not cross, for the river was t- uh, water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that um, could not be crossed. In other words, he couldn't touch the bottom anymore. So as he's making his way in this progression of, of, of several uh, 1,000 cubit distances, water comes up to his ankle, then it comes up to his knees, then it comes up to his waist, and then he, then he can't touch uh, bottom there. So a, a, a very mysterious uh, river. Uh, a river that has a, a greater flow downstream than it has upstream. So very, very supernatural. Uh, I, uh, one of, uh, this is one of my favorite images in my mind in the whole Bible uh, related to the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and our relationship with the Holy Spirit as God's people and, and especially uh, as Christians. I think this entire progression represents the experience of the average Christian with the Holy Spirit. You remember Jesus spoke of the baptism with the Holy Spirit in, in uh, John chapter 7 uh, and, and he spoke about it, uh, him producing a torrent of living water coming out of our innermost being. And, uh, and how often when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is entirely new to us and uh, we begin to head out into uh, the life of the Spirit up into our, our ankles and it's all very, very exciting to us. And then as we continue on in our progression of our Christian life, 
Uh, we go now uh, so far as to him dominating our life on kind of a knee level, and the Holy Spirit is still fun and exciting, and, but I've still got control of my life. I can still touch bottom, and uh, we can splash ourselves and have fun as you can do in knee-deep water, and then a little bit further down, now we're in experience with the Holy Spirit in which that flow is hitting us at the waist, and we realize uh, this is like half and half between me maintaining control of my life or going with the flow of of what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life. And then as we continue to grow and and typically and in our relationship with the Lord and in our understanding of the Holy Spirit, ultimately we come to a place where we can't touch bottom. Now we have, by our own surrender, we have surrendered our life to the flow of the Holy Spirit, the direction of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit within our lives, uh, where we say, I don't want to touch bottom anymore. Uh, I don't want a life in the Spirit to be a plaything for me, an amusement for me. Uh, I've got one life to live, and what I want this life to be is one that is dominated by your direction, dominated by what uh, you have in mind for my life, and, and then to spend the rest, hopefully, the rest of our Christian life in exactly that, uh, that place. And that's the most, of course, the most exciting place. Uh, it, it kills the flesh, but the most exciting place that a, a, a person can live. I love the imagery of that it produces in that way. And then finally, you know, I mean, when you, once, once you've gone to that place and you stay in there any length of time, now you're forever spoiled, really, uh, for ever going back and, and uh, having a lesser experience with the Holy Spirit. For, for one reason is we become so dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Uh, that uh, the mere thought of taking our life back under our control and living it in, in, the, in the context of our own severe limitations uh, frightens us to death. Uh, we know enough about ourselves by that point. And so here's this beautiful image of, of the flow of this river. And, and he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me and he returned me to the bank of the river. And when I returned there along the bank of the river, uh, this new river that will flow from, uh, from Jerusalem, from the threshold of the temple, uh, there, will be, uh, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. So there's, you picture it in your mind, this dense growth of, of uh, trees on both sides. And then he said to me, and this is very interesting for all of us, but some of you will be able to picture it in your mind from a trip to Israel when we uh, go out towards En Gedi and out the, the day that's spent out in the desert, the wilder, Judean wilderness uh, area. And he, he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, and it goes down into the valley and enters the sea. And so the flow of this river, you picture it in your mind, it will flow from the new temple down the Kidron Valley, and, uh, and then it will make its way and feed the, the sea that's referred to here is the Dead Sea. And it's going to bring life to the Dead Sea. Do you know why the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea? As it's dead. There's, not one, there's no microorganism. There's nothing that's alive in it. It has uh, six times the salt content, the mineral content of, of regular water. Nothing can live in it, and it has no outlet to it either. So it's a miracle to turn the Dead Sea into uh, something that is living, and yet this stream is going uh, to do that. 
And when it reaches the the Dead Sea, its waters are going to be healed. The description of that healing is described here. Those of you who are fishermen, you'll be so excited. Uh, And it shall be that every living thing that moves, uh, wherever the rivers go, will live. And so this is a living river and a moving river, a river that gives life. Again, a a picture of of anything that God's contact, God has brought into contact with. And there will be great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. And so it shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi. That's where uh, David was running away from Saul in, in that area. And so you're going to have fishermen that are going to be fishing at En Gedi and uh, putting their nets out. And uh, all the way to uh, En uh, Egleim, and, the, and that is uh, near Qumran, very desolate areas today. Uh, there are going to be fishermen uh, there putting their nets out. There'll be places for spreading their nets, and their fish will be the same kinds as the fish of the Great Sea. That is the Mediterranean. The Dead Sea will one day uh, uh, have uh, the, the same variety and, uh, and, and sheer number of fish as can be found in, in the Dead Sea exceedingly many. Uh, but it's marshes and it's swamps, uh, so uh, don't buy marshland and uh, swampland uh, prior to this. It, th- that will not be healed, but they'll be given over to salt. And of course, actually, uh, do buy it. Uh, you know, why would God heal the entire Dead Sea and leave some of the marshlands around it uh, salty? Well, you need salt for life. And, uh, and entire kingdoms in the, in, in the history of Europe uh, dominated the world because they were a source uh, of salt to the rest of the world. You cannot live without salt. And along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither, so they'll be evergreen, and their fruit will not fail. And, uh, and they will bear fruit every month because the, their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. And so uh, all of you people that are into like the whole medicinal, I'm not saying you people in a bad way, uh, you people. Uh, but you, you like all of that and, you know, how the plants and what's found in and what are all these deals and, and uh, these, these are, you, you'll be fascinated by this during the kingdom age uh, if you care in your new body. But, and thus says the Lord God as he now begins to formally speak of the boundaries of the, the, the land in terms of uh, the overall boundaries of what will be considered the land of Israel during the kingdom age. Thus says the Lord God, these are the boundaries, the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall inherit it equally with one another, for I have raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as an inheritance. This shall be the border of the land on the north, uh, from the great sea by the road to uh, Hethlon, as one goes to Zedad, uh, Hamath, uh, Berathath, and Sibraim, uh, 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 which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, to uh, Hazar, 
uh, Hatakan, which is on the border of uh, Haran. And thus the, the boundary shall be from the sea to Hares Enon, uh, the border of Damascus as far as the north. Northward is the border of Hamath. This is the north side. And on the east side of the land, the border, you shall mark out the border from between uh, Haran and, uh, and Damascus and between Gilead and the land of Israel along the Jordan and along the eastern side of the sea. This is the east side. And then the south boundary toward the south shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh along the brooks, uh, brook to the great sea. This is the south side toward the south. The west shall be uh, very simple. It is the border of the great sea, the Mediterranean, from the southern boundary until one comes to a point opposite uh, Hamath. This is the west side. And thus you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the, the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. Uh, they shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel, and it shall be that uh, what in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord. And so these, tribe, these uh, areas are be going to be given to the different the 12 tribes of Israel somehow um, in the kingdom age. Uh, the Jews will understand what was their tribe. It's a complete mystery to them uh, now. Those genealogies have been lost. But um, they'll know then and when strangers, that is Gentiles, want to live close to God, want to live in, uh, in the area of Israel rather than in Brazil or in Russia or in uh, Uganda, uh, then uh, room, they are uh, 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 to be allowed to settle into that part of the land. And so there'll be n uh, no kind of refugee problems or anything like that in, in the kingdom age. Chapter 48. Now, these are the names of the tribes. And, and now he allocates formally the, the, the having spelled out the, the scope of the land and the boundaries now, uh, what portions go to who. And now your map becomes uh, helpful for you. Now, these are the, tribe, uh, the names of the tribes from the northern border along the road to Hethlon at the entrance of Hamath to uh, Hazer Enon, the border of Damascus uh, northward in the direction of Hamath. There shall be uh, one section for Dan. And uh, so you see them having that northernmost allocation of, of the land from its east to its west side. And so you see how, um, again, how ordered everything is in the kingdom age, uh, very different from when it was allocated under Joshua, and they will just simply have a, a strip of land from uh, the eastern border all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. And then uh, that's the, allo the allocation of the, the land to Dan, and then uh, in terms of Asher, by the border of Dan, from the east side to the west, one section for Asher. For, by the border of Asher, from the east side uh, to the west, one section for uh, Naphtali. And by the border of Naphtali, from the east side to the west, one section for Manasseh. By the border of Manasseh, from the east side to the west, one section for Ephraim. And by the border of Ephraim, from the east side to the west, one section for Reuben. And then finally here, as he names the first seven of the 12 tribes, uh, by the border of Reuben, 
from the east side to the west, one section for uh, Judah. And uh, in, in that uh, section that's allocated to Judah, as you, uh, you see there, it uh, then begins to border now this section of land that we talked about earlier in, uh, in this, uh, this study tonight. By the border of, of Judah, from the east side to the west shall be the district which you shall set apart, 25,000 cubits in its width, and in length the same as the other portions from the east side uh, to the west with a sanctuary in its center. The district that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in its length and 10,000 cubits in its width. So again, that land that's to be allocated to the priests, to the Levites, and to the city of Jerusalem uh, in general. And to these, uh, to the priests, the holy district shall belong in the north 25,000 cubits in length, on the west 10,000 uh, in width, on the east 10,000 in width, and on the south 25,000 in length. The sanctuary of the Lord will be in the center. It shall be for the priests of the sons of Zadok, uh, who are uh, sanctified, who have uh, kept my charge, who did not go astray when the children of Israel went astray as uh, the Levites went astray. And this district of land that is set apart shall be to them a thing most holy by the border of the Levites. And then Opposite the border of the priests by the Levites, uh, the, the Levites shall have an area 25,000 cubits in length, 10,000 in width. Its entire length shall be 25,000 cubits and its width 10,000. And they shall not sell or exchange any of it. And uh, they, they shall uh, not, they, they may not uh, alienate this uh, part this best part of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. So we'll never want to see this on realtor.com. Uh, it, is, it is theirs. It is not to be sold for profit. Again, just speaking about how, how holy and, uh, and how badly the, the land and the worship of the Lord was misused in, in the Old Testament. All of that will be brought to a screeching halt. And, and in a way that we can't really even appreciate as Gentiles. Uh, again, a Jew reading this and realizing that uh, every single uh, there's a safeguard against every single abuse that our, our princes, our priests, our Levites, uh, you know, uh, meted out against us in the course of our history. Everything's been thought of. None of that will go on in the kingdom age. And the 5,000 cubits in width that remain along the edge of the 25,000 shall be for general use by the city, for, the, for dwellings and common land, and the city shall be in the center. And these shall be its measurements from the north side, 4,500 cubits, and the south side, 4,500 cubits, the same on the east and the west as well. And the common land, uh, the common land of the city shall be to the north, uh, 250 cubits, to the south the same, to the east, 250 cubits, and the same to the west. And the rest of the length alongside the district of the holy section shall be 10,000 cubits to the east. Uh, also to the west, it shall be adjacent to the district of the holy section, and its produce shall be food for the workers of the city. And the workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall cultivate it. Uh, the land will be used to produce uh, sustenance. And the entire district shall be 25,000 cubits by 25,000 
uh, cubits, four square, and you shall set the holy district within the property of the city. The rest shall belong to the prince on one side and on the other, uh, as you see in, in your map here and as we've talked about in the past, uh, and uh, of the holy district and of the city's property next to the 25,000 cubits of the holy district as far as the eastern border. And westward, uh, next to the 25,000 cubits as far as the western border, adjacent to the tribal portion, it shall belong to the prince, it shall be the holy district and the sanctuary of the temple shall be in its center. Moreover, apart from the possession of the Levites and the possession of the city which are in the midst of what belongs to the prince, the area between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall belong to the prince. And as for the rest of the tribes, uh, from the east to the west, Benjamin shall have one section by the border of Benjamin. From the east to the west, Simeon shall have one section by the border of Simeon to the, from the east to the west. Uh, Issachar shall have one section by the border of Issachar from the east to the west. Zebulun will have one section by the border of Zebulun from the east to the west. Gad shall have one section by the border of Gad and on the south side uh, toward the south the border shall be from uh, Tamar to the uh, waters of Meribah by Kadesh along the brook uh, to, uh, to the great sea. This section is given to the Kyle clan. You're still with me. Okay, that was a test. This is the land which you shall divide by lot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are their portions, says the Lord. These are the exits of the city on the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits. Uh, the gates, now talking about the gates that constitute the exits and entrances to the city. The gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates uh, that face northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, uh, one gate for Levi. On the east side, 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Joseph and another for Benjamin and another for Dan. On the south side, with the same measurements, one gate for Simeon, another for Issachar and another for Zebulun. On the west side, 4,500 cubits with their three gates, one gate for Gad, one gate for Asher, and one gate for uh, Naphtali. And uh, all around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be, and here's the, what, the, the name that will be given to Jerusalem. Its uh, main attraction is the Lord is there. Now, we got an arch. And Paris has a, a Louvre and a lot of other stuff that they stole from a lot of other countries, by the way. Just listen, nothing against you if you're French. But artists passed through a lot of hands and all. They've returned a lot of it that Napoleon took. And so I'm, I'm listening to an audio book on uh, a life of Napoleon. So it's at the forefront of, of my mind. And, uh, but enough about the distraction. But um, the, the single thing that an attraction, an appeal uh, to, uh, uniquely so, to, to Jerusalem during the kingdom age will be the, the presence of, of the Lord there. 
And that is the greatest attraction and, and the, that a, a city uh, can uh, possess. And Jerusalem will possess it during the kingdom age. And so we finish our, uh, the study of the book of Ezekiel. What a man. What a saint. What a brother. What a, uh, and faithful to the Lord through what? I mean, the disappointment that he faced in going into captivity and lying on one side for this part of a year and on the other side and then loss of his wife and he can't mourn and he's digging holes out of his walls and, and all of this deprivation that he experienced to be faithful to the Lord. And, and uh, what a privilege it has been to, to study this prophecy that, that bears his name. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Before we do that... Um, I want to let you know that if you are here tonight, and it might be the first time you've ever been in church. Now, that's, that's something, uh, to go through these chapters and here you are. Or you might be just coming back to church after being away from the Lord for a long time or whatever it might be. But if you've never given your life to the Lord, never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, entered into now a relationship with God that you've been created for, that's your big need tonight. And, and we'll be up in front immediately after the service and in order to uh, pray with you and for you related to that decision. If you need prayer for any need in your life tonight, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. And, and so would I. Let's pray together now. Father, thank you for this time in the book of Ezekiel. We thank you for all of the things that you have uh, planted in our hearts and in our spirit and our relationship with you through the months of going through this book, things that we don't even know that you've planted there that you will bring to our remembrance at just the right time as an encouragement or an exhortation or an edification. And thank you for this man. Thank you for his life. Thank you for your faithfulness and his life as well and the privilege of, of being able to study it. Thank you for a happy ending. Lord, you love happy endings. We love happy endings and to know that as we're in kind of the muck and mire of our little place in human history, that to know that all of this ends well for us as your children. And we thank you for the hope that is there and what that brings to our lives on a daily uh, basis. Thank you for the stream of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would uh, always be taking us out in, in a deeper measure and in a greater measure under his leading and, uh, and in the stirring up of your gifts within our lives, that our lives might be marked uh, by the supernatural, Lord, not only the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but love and endurance as we see in Ezekiel. Thank you, Lord. And again, thank you for this time and, and uh, this time that we have spent with you and been able to do it together. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.